0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Progressive, The Breakdown, The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, Media Matters, Counterspin, and The Jimmy Dore Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show.
1: Colonel Qaddafi's fortunes continue to deteriorate as we find out in our new segment, Mess Oh North Africa? <laughs> the fighting has brought rebel forces up to the very edge of Colonel Muammar Qaddafi's stronghold in Tripoli. As Libyans continue their desperate effort to overthrow a tyrant who seems increasingly out of touch, as evidenced by this interview from two days ago. They love me, all my people with me. They love me all. But if they do love
2: me, they, they,
1: they will die to, to protect me, my, my people. They're hitting your picture in the face with shoes. <laughs> no, it's because they, they think it's a poor likeness of me. That is all. They're, they're angry at the quality of the pictures. This is all. <laughs> Clearly, Qaddafi does not hear his own people. Maybe if they were hitting his picture with tap shoes. Oh, maybe he'll listen to the international community. I think um,
3: this man, uh, I, I don't believe that he, even his family loves him at this moment. I, I, I don't know how he thinks this, uh, th- this man. I think uh, he, he's certainly out of his mind. It's very important for him and for uh, his family to, uh, to, uh, to step uh, down immediately.
1: Stern words from any international official, let alone your own country's deputy ambassador to the U.N., Ibrahim Dabashi. That guy is your own Libyan deputy ambassador, risking not just his life, but a whole host of diplomatic, immunity-born New York City parking privileges. (laughs) I'm so tired today. I think I'll block the box.
2: Stop
1: me. (laughs) Now, Qaddafi, will you step down? Uh, How can I step
4: down what from I have no post to step down from I don't have any position I don't lead Libya. Libya does not have a leader or president or king. Libya is a state of the masses whoa
1: (laughs) That is some existential (laughs) You can't fire Muammar Gaddafi because Muammar Gaddafi does not exist smoke bomb. Boom, boom. No wonder you're wearing sunglasses. You're high. Alright, dude, but now, seriously? 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 You've done it now.
5: The United Nations has also suspended Libya from its Human Rights Council.
1: What the f***? (laughs) Libya was on the Human Rights Council? Libya, Libya, this guy was on the Human Rights Council, <laughs> Libya, wait, hold on, were they there as a cautionary tale, <laughs> like as you were talking about torture, and <laughs> that some, every now and again someone would go, you know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> by the way, suspended broken. from the Human Rights Council, <laughs> what would he have to do to be expelled from the Human Rights Council, <laughs> heads on pikes, but, uh, there you go, Mumi. Your own people. The international community. You got to know and to fold them. <laughs> right? The suitable time we will open the arms depot
6: so all Libyans and tribes become armed so that Libya becomes red with
1: fire. I guess you're going in a different direction. <laughs> all right, well, to be fair to Gaddafi, he's not all stick and no carrot.
7: Many are standing hours outside banks to collect a $400 handout from the regime in a desperate attempt to buy support before the chaos strikes.
1: This is insanity. This guy's like the Ike Turner of dictators. I'm going to turn this country red with fire, bitch. I'm sorry, baby. Here's $400. Go out and buy yourself something tonight. I'm sorry, baby. You know, I get angry sometimes, baby. I'm sorry, baby. Colonel, here's the thing. At this point, all your people are going to do with $400 is hit you with more expensive shoes. <laughs> I
4: thought these shoes just don't suit me. Hey, I put some new shoes on and suddenly
1: everything's right. I said, hey, I put some new shoes on and everybody's smiling. It's so and No short on money, but long on time. Slowly showing in the sweet sunshine.
3: One state.
1: And I'm seeing stars as I'm rubbing my eyes And I felt like there were two
3: days missing As I focused on the time.
8: And like that, then bleak, a new war Just as the Arab Spring erupted across the region of Mediterranean Africa And people took to the streets in opposition to their sclerotic, kleptocratic rulers The West has thrust its large nose into the tent and voila, a new war has emerged, blessed by both the U.N. Security Council and the Arab League. Oh, they're using euphemisms like no-fly zone and protecting civilians, but those of us with a little memory can recall the decade-long U.S.-British no-fly zone over Iraq, which laid the groundwork for an invasion and a disaster that followed. Obama, elected ostensibly as the candidate to pull the U.S. out of at least one stupid war, has, bowing to right-wing and corporate pressure, opened the door to yet another one. Dissenters will argue that this isn't the same thing, that it's a no-fly zone, not an attack, and that Libya is no Iraq. In fact, any armed intervention in a nation's war is, well, war. When France joined the U.S. side in the U.S. fight against Britain, it became a combatant at war with England. A no-fly zone. Like a blockade is an act of war. The gates are open. This war, like Iraq, will result in disaster. And we will look back and wonder how we got here. From Death Row, this is Mumia
7: Abu Jamal.
3: I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of The Progressive Magazine, with my progressive point of view, which you can also grab off our website over at progressive.org. President Obama's decision to wage war on Libya is unconstitutional, naive, and hypocritical. Our founders would be appalled that a president could launch the country into war without a formal declaration by Congress, much less barely any discussion of it by the House or by the Senate. We as Americans need to face facts. we got a runaway executive branch when it comes to war-making. And Obama appears naive in the extreme on this one. It's naive to expect U.S. involvement in this war to be over in days, not weeks, as he said. It's naive to expect all of Libya to cheer as its country is being attacked by Western powers. It's naive to expect civilian casualties not to mount as a result of his actions, which makes his stated reason for the war incoherent. He said innocent men and women face brutality and death at the hands of their own government. Well, that's true of the people of Yemen and Bahrain, too, where our own allies just mowed down dozens of peaceful protesters in the past week alone. There's no consistent humanitarian standard for Obama's war against Libya, none whatsoever. And he's pushed the U.S. to a place where we're now engaged in three wars simultaneously. It's getting to the point where war seems to be the only thing we make these days.
0: But 7-8% to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
9: Hello and welcome back to The Breakdown, week 50, episode 50 in a collector series. The question this week has to do with our current military intervention in Libya. March 18th, President Obama, referencing UN Security Council authorization, began military operations on Libya to enforce a UN-mandated no-fly zone. There's scattered reports about the level of US involvement, but we've moved ships into the area. It appears that our pilots are enforcing the no-fly zone. We've launched somewhere around 112 cruise missiles. And what's remarkable about all this is that this was announced on a Thursday evening after the resolution, and there was no congressional action whatsoever, nothing so much as a resolution, there was some consultation, the president sent a letter to Congress basically informing them of the ongoing activities, and there was some pushback uh, from some members of Congress, many in the Progressive Caucus, particularly John Larson in Connecticut, basically saying this is not right. Dennis Kucinich went so far as to say it was completely unconstitutional and floated the notion of impeachment. got me to wondering the degree to which the current military actions in Libya are constitutional. Did the president need to go to Congress? That's my question. And to answer it, I have legendary professor at Yale University School of Law, Bruce Ackerman, He's Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science, author of 15 books, broad influence and a whole variety of topics. His most recent work is The Decline and Fall of the American Republic. Professor Ackerman, thanks so much for joining us.
10: Well, it's a pleasure.
9: Okay, so let's start out with what the Constitution says about this specific issue about war, who holds the power to declare it, how presidents need to go about going through the process.
10: Well, the Constitution clearly gives the power to declare war to Congress. But the crucial thing that we should be focusing on is the War Powers Resolution of 1973, because that's where Congress itself tried to... Define the role of unilateral presidential action of the kind that President Obama has undertaken. And really, that should be the focus, you see, because under the War Powers Resolution, presidential unilateral action is authorized by the Congress itself under very specific conditions.
9: Okay, so just so that we get some historical context, my my understanding of the War Powers Resolution is that the dawn of the Cold War had wrenched a lot of authority into the executive. Truman, if I'm not mistaken, essentially didn't even go to Congress over Korea. And in the fallout of Vietnam, that's when Congress got together to pass the War Powers Resolution, right?
10: Absolutely right. So this was a very considered decision by Congress and the mass of the American people, really. This is It's not like a little detail on what we've learned from the Vietnam War and under what conditions we should try to use our growing world power. And the key thing here is that Congress recognized the legitimacy of presidential unilateral action under emergency conditions, which it defines in Section 2C, to be precise, National emergency created by attack upon the United States, its territories or possessions, or its armed forces. So if, for example, uh, some group attacks the USS Cole, that triggers under this congressional uh, resolution. And it isn't the resolution, it was passed by Congress. It was over the veto of the president, and it was passed by two-thirds of Congress. Wow. Um, It says that if coal is attacked, then the president can indeed use force for 60 days, during which time he has to get approval from Congress. And if he can't get that approval, he has to leave in 30 more days. So that's... What the framework established by Congress after a very broad debate at a constitutional moment, as it were, in which normal Americans were really attending to this.
9: So the, the precipitating conditions as enumerated in Section 2C of the War Powers Resolution are, it sounded like there were three of them, an attack on the U.S., Right. Attack on its forces. Right.
10: Or its territories, yes. That's the third one.
9: Okay, or its territories. Now, at first blush, um, (laughs) this situation does not seem, without a fairly tortured reading of those enumerated conditions, to fit into that. Completely
10: right. That's why the president has no authority under the War Powers Resolution to have acted unilaterally.
9: So you think that he is not within the, the four... The four corners of the law on this. Absolutely.
10: Now, indeed, one should recognize that some presidents have asserted that the War Powers Resolution is unconstitutional Hmm. and more. Interestingly, the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the elite staff of presidential lawyers have, as it were, through their exercises of interpretation, and I put quotation marks around the word interpretation, uh, latitudinary interpretation, has a bit waged war on the War Powers Resolution. Uh-huh. Now, it should also be said, to be fair, that the War Powers Resolution also says that it should not be interpreted to conclude the question. Hmm. The president President can also assert, if he wishes, that he has the power under the Constitution apart from the war powers resolution. And many uh, presidents have made such assertions. The key point, of course, is that President Obama was elected to put a check on such unilateral assertions of executive power independent of anything. This was one of the reasons we elected President Obama. And so the tragedy here is that President Obama is embracing the extreme Bush line on inherent executive power to go to war and is confirming the precedence of the last 40 years in which, in one way or another, presidents have tried to get out of um, the notion that, yes, they can react when the country is attacked or when a statute, for example, authorizes it ahead of time or when Congress declares war and that kind of thing, but they can uh, react in emergencies. The thing in Libya, whatever you want to think about it, and I'm a two minds on the merits does not represent something like responding to an attack on The battleships.
9: I want to sort of end up on what the contours of the legal theory being asserted by the Obama administration are because I think they're unclear. But before we get to that, the kind of penultimate question is just you know, it strikes me there's a number of military interventions that have been undertaken even before the Bush administration, particularly during the Clinton years, that don't seem to me to sit squarely within those same enumerated precipitating conditions in the War Powers Resolution. The NATO campaigns in the former Yugoslavia, the no fly zone in Iraq come to mind most immediately. How did the Clinton administration negotiate? that legal terrain.
10: You are absolutely correct. The expansion of presidential power and the trivialization of the War Powers Resolution reaches its climax in an opinion written by Walter Dellinger in defense of uh, Clinton's Kosovo campaign, in which he grasps at the fact that there is an authorization and appropriations measure which mentions the bombing to say that Congress has approved of this. In the face of of Section 8 of the War Powers Resolution, which says that you shall not interpret appropriations measures (laughs) um, uh, to do so, except when they are really specifically authorize it. So I want to emphasize, you see, Bush, he talked a big game, but he did get congressional approval both for Afghanistan and for Iraq. He talked of the game, but in this particular, Obama is actually putting Bush's theory. He hasn't elaborated the theory yet. There is a claim that there is something in the statutes, I'm interested to find out where it is, that authorizes this action. But Obama is outbushing Bush here. He is actually realizing what Bush asserted, and of course Bush asserted in many other contexts. For example, in the torture memo context of John Yoo, that was a different kind of context. So far as getting explicit congressional support was concerned, Bush got it, and Obama didn't, even though he had time to do it. We were spending a lot of time lobbying the Arab League. Here was John McCain and Kerry and a lot of people saying, we're for it, let's go. If the president had wanted to get an authorization, he could have gotten it. Right. And he didn't do it. So in that sense, he is confirming this bipartisan project of presidents of both Democratic and Republican persuasion to spring free of the War Powers Resolution and to assert unilateral power. And this is really one of the large themes of my book on the decline and fall of the American Republic. This is a very serious matter. And of course, Obama is setting a precedent for the future presidents of the United States who will look back and say, look. Obama approved this entire line, ratified this entire line of constitutional development, and we're just continuing this Obama-Bush-Clinton era's elaboration of presidential power.
9: And, and the legal theory here, which the, the President sent a letter to Congress in which he mentions the War Powers Resolution. That's right. But does not seem to ground the legal rationale for his actions in the War Powers Resolution, which is to say, it is not grounded in some sort of torture reading of those three sort of precipitated That's right. conditions. Rather, it's grounded in a constitutional interpretation of the president's power as a commander in chief, which I think John Yu once famously said that the president is at the zenith of his constitutional power when acting as Commander-in-Chief.
10: This letter is ambiguous. You see, the War Powers Act in this Section 2 states the congressional understanding of legitimate unilateral actions of emergency. Then later provisions say that whenever the president puts the soldiers in harm's way, he has to inform Congress that he's done so within 48 hours. The president has complied with that part of the War Powers resolution. As have previous presidents, they have trivialized Section 2. And when I read the letter of compliance under the War Powers Resolution telling the the Speaker of the House and the President Senate that there's a problem in Libya that we're engaged in here. I didn't see an elaboration of an express constitutional foundation. You see, President Obama has been very careful so far not to explicitly endorse the kind of extreme executive power theories of John Yoo and Dick Cheney and the like. He has has been continuing many of Bush's war policies in Iraq and Afghanistan and drones and, and the like, but under creative interpretations of the statutes passed or the resolutions passed by Congress authorizing the war on terror and things of this kind, he has not bitten the Bush bullet. And so I'm interested to hear what, you know, Secretary of State Clinton says under the prevailing authorities, this is fine. Well, what are the prevailing authorities? There's a citation, of course, inevitably, to Harry Truman's decision that you've already mentioned to go into Korea under United Nations Security Council resolution, but without the consent of Congress, explicit consent of Congress. But that notice is before the enactment of the War Powers Resolution, which tries to define things after our bitter experience of the Vietnam War. There is a perennial invocation of the fact that since Thomas Jefferson's time, there have been perhaps 200 military incursions of one kind or another and very few indeed uh, declarations of war and and the like but once again whatever you want to say here is this war powers resolution in which americans of the 20th century the last generation tried to saw that there's a real problem now that we have a big standing army and things of this kind tried in a very thoughtful and constitutionally responsible way to structure power and then the pattern of evasion and uh, that presidents have pursued since then. And the key tragedy here is that President Obama is not trying to put this thing under control, even in a context in which he could easily have gotten this war powers the, the resolution, and would have avoided a lot of the carping and, you know, a stab in the back phenomena that's going to occur. It's a sad day in the constitutional history of the United States, I must say.
1: So, 10 days after we started bombing Libya, President Obama took to the podium to convince Americans that we should bomb Libya. (laughs) Starting 10 days ago. I've made it clear that I will
6: never hesitate to use our military swiftly, decisively, and unilaterally when necessary to defend our people, our homeland, our allies, and our core interests. For those who doubted our capacity to carry out this operation, I want to be clear. The United States of America has done what we said we would
1: do. What are you annoyed at us for? <laughs> we just wanted to know why we were bombing people. We just wanted to ask and nobody said to us. We were just sitting there thinking about like, look, we're doing what we said we would do. Biden, no lap dances. (laughs) Listen, initially we all thought we went in because the Libyans asked for our help by flipping on uh, the hope signal. But (laughs) now it seems there's another reason which, much to his chagrin, the president had to go on TV and talk about.
6: Last month, Gaddafi's grip of fear appeared to give way to the promise of freedom. No, no, no. Go further back than that. For more than four decades, the Libyan people have been ruled by a tyrant, Muammar Gaddafi. Keep going. For generations, the United States of America has played a unique role as an anchor of global security and as an
1: advocate for human freedom. Thank you. (laughs) So uh, why exactly are we in Libya instead of any of the other countries currently causing global insecurity and unfreedom? Gaddafi chose to escalate his attacks. If we waited one
6: more day, Benghazi, a city nearly the size of Charlotte, could suffer a massacre that would have reverberated across the region and stained the conscience of the world. It was not in our national interest to let that happen. All right, that's a compelling
1: reason. Although I have to ask, Is there a massacre of a city the size of Charlotte that is in our national interest? (laughs) And is it Charlotte? (laughs) So we're taking out Gaddafi, he's toast. He's drone kill, hashtag losing,
6: done. There is no question that Libya and the world would be better off with Gaddafi out of power. But broadening our military mission to include regime change, would be
1: a mistake. (laughs) So we're not taking Qaddafi out. But we wouldn't be upset if he was. And the Rebels did it. It's kind of like the explosion version of, uh, hey Rebels. Hey, uh, but Mr. President, what if they don't, you know? <laughs> do we just sit there? Is the United States the rebel's air force
6: forever? Last night, NATO decided to take on the additional responsibility of protecting Libyan civilians. This transfer from the United States to NATO will take place on Wednesday. So there is an exit
1: strategy. We turned over the mission to NATO! Man, I feel bad for whoever the sucker is that's the main driving force financially and weapon-wise in that organization, because those guys are... F- Wait a minute. We're NATO! That's like Beyonce saying she's ceding control
3: to Sasha Fierce.
1: Yeah. 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 We were going to go with Garth Brooks and Chris Gaines until someone reminded me that I'm old.
3: Remember those walls I built? Well, baby, they're tumbling down. And they didn't even put up a fight.
0: a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself, so for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com
4: You know, with, uh, with Livia, this may be a dumb question, but instead of constantly putting ourselves in the position of bombing dictators, why don't we stop selling them bombs? I, I don't know. Is this... Is, uh, some people accuse me of saying, David, you know, every time a, a Republican or a conservative makes a simple argument, you go on this 15-minute rant with tons of nuance and details about why it's not the case. And you need to be the one with the simple arguments. I feel like this argument may be too simple, but instead of bombing dictators, why don't we stop selling them bombs? If we stopped selling arms to repressive regimes, they... yes, they may be able to get weapons from other places, certainly, but at least we wouldn't be complicit in so many countries using American weapons against their own people. I think I like the idea. And against us. And against us. In 2009 alone, European governments, including Britain and France, sold Libya almost $500 million worth of weapons, including fighter jets, guns, bombs, and before it started calling for regime change, the Obama administration was working to provide Muammar Gaddafi almost another $100 million in weapons, on top of the $17 million it gave in 2009 and the $46 million the Bush administration gave in 2008. Yemen has received over $300 million in military aid from the U.S. over the last five years. Obama administration continues to support the corrupt thug and president for life, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who recently ordered a a massacre of more than 50 of his own people. Let's stop selling weapons to people who we end up bombing. Tell me where I'm going wrong, Lewis. No, that's, that's fine, but how do you propose to stop it? Oh, come on, I have no idea. I'm just a guy, I'm just a guy with a radio show. I don't... Even, I just asked the question. Somebody much smarter than me has to figure that out, right? Uh, perhaps, yeah. You know, rather than engage in this uh, cruise-missile liberalism, I read that it, some are calling it, Obama could save lives by immediately ending support for brutal regimes. But for U- U.S. administrations, and we're talking Democrats and Republicans, ladies and gentlemen, selling weapons seems to trump liberation. We hear so much the people need to be liberated. Let's spread democracy. But I guess arms sales are more important. I'm actually reading a book right now called The Night Manager. It's it's by a uh, spy fiction master, John Le Carre. wrote Spy Who Came in from the Cold and all the George Smiley stuff, and it actually deals with uh, an, uh, an undercover operation around the first Gulf War to track down and entrap an arms dealer, and it's fascinating. And really, it just reminds me of what we're talking about now with Libya. Last September, the Financial Times reported that the U.S. had struck deals to provide Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, and Oman with 100, over a hundred billion worth of arms. Okay, half of that was going to the repressive monarchy of saudi arabia you remember george w bush holding hands with them and instead of forking hundred and fifty million a day to the weapons industry to attack libya or selling weapons to the saudis to repress their own people and those of bahrain what 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 about if the people here lewis the ones being asked to forego social security to pay for this those being asked to forgo collective bargaining rights because we can't afford it what if they demand we stop selling, we stop arming dictators in our name? Can it happen? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out why arm them in the first place. I mean, is this a form of uh of control? Is this is this a way to uh it, the the rabbit hole is deep, Lewis, you know that. I mean, there's a number of factors. There's the financial factor. There is the idea of, well, we think they're our friends and it can help us against those that at the time we think are our enemies. Rumsfeld shaking hands with, with uh, Saddam in, in the 80s. And forget about dropping bombs in the Middle East, stop selling them bombs. I feel like the financial factor is not a very big one. Really? No, I think it's big. I mean, a lot, there's tons of deals made, Lewis, where the U.S. will go to, for but example... But it's not like there aren't bidding wars here going on where,
0: I mean, if they were going to get a better deal from another country, they'd take it. So, I mean, how much profit
4: are we really making That's that? not the way it works. Oh, what, Lewis. What are you, what are you, what's going on there? Poor Lewis, ladies and gentlemen, is so naive here. Oh, sh- just shop around, they'll get a better deal. Lewis. here's, here, the thing is this, I wish it were that simple. The US, Enlighten will go, me, David. the U.S. will go to another country and say, we're going to help you. We're going to give you military aid. How's 200 million sound? It sounds good? Great. We'll give it to you. No strings attached. Oh, except, except, you've got to spend 95% of it on weapons from American companies. So why would they shop around? Why on earth would they shop around? The U.S. is giving them money. All they're saying is you got to buy American weapons with it. You're gonna go for a five percent discount from from whoever else and pay for it with your own money, or take o- other the countries aid? aren't gonna make them this, give them the same deal. Apparently not. You're, you're telling me no There's other a- superpowers are gonna give them the same deal. We're, we may find isolated in- instances, Lewis, of anything, but what I'm saying like, is, like people in China have not thought of doing this. There's a number. Listen, in China, they're reverse engineering downed U.S. planes to figure out certain technologies. So just because China would have an incentive doesn't mean they can provide everything the U.S. can provide. Right. But Lewis, Lewis's naivete here is—it's striking, ladies and gentlemen. So I want to move on. I, I don't want to further embarrass Lewis and, and talk him into a corner. I'm very embarrassed right now. <laughs>
5: as I think uh, President Obama is definitely on the right track in Libya uh, apparently some conservatives do not uh, share my beliefs uh, they're very concerned that Al Qaeda is going to take over in Libya now are they really concerned about that no it's absurd I'm going to show you why in a second uh, but they say that because uh this way they will get to call Obama a terrorist uh, or a terrorist sympathizer, in league with the terrorists, etc. They will get to criticize Obama's foreign policy. It's a win-win for them, right? Now here's the reality. The US intelligence community has found this is a quote from the LA Times, the US intelligence community has found no organized presence of Al-Qaeda or its allies among the Libyan opposition. None. Okay, now those are the facts. That's our U.S intelligence officials saying okay? Now what are conservatives say? Well, there's some clown named Brian Fisher. He's with some clownish conservative organization, and he says, quote, "Al-Qaeda is behind the rebellion in Libya, so this no-fly zone is in fact helping the Muslims who killed 3,000 Americans on 9/11. That one gets a face palm. Uh, but helping our sworn enemies, especially if they are Muslims, does not seem to bother Obama. does not seem to be a bother to Obama well how did the people who killed us on nylon how they wind up in, in western libya how what they i thought they were in northern pakistan no it doesn't matter they're arabs they're arabs man they're all kind of al qaeda and if obama did nothing he'd be helping al qaeda if he does something he's helping al qaeda they're arabs so no connection to the facts that's okay some small fry guy right uh I, there's a, a bunch of other bloggers who are Lunatics. I'm not even gonna get into them. Let's get to the elected officials of former elected officials, like former Speaker Newt Gingrich. Uh he says, quote, on Facebook, does President Obama acknowledge the danger of Al-Qaeda allies among the anti-Gaddafi forces and pledge to work for a moderate replacement government without extremist factions? Do you remember the first guy advocating we go get Qaddafi? That was Newt Gingrich. Now that you're going to get Qaddafi, Newt Gingrich says, you're helping Al Qaeda. How can you go against Qaddafi? By the way, he's on 18 different flip flops. Right now, his current position is that we should go eliminate Qaddafi, if with ground troops, if we need to. So, but then wouldn't you be helping Al Qaeda according to your logic? <laughs> logic is no place in the conservative world. And finally, we we'll go to Representative Michelle bachman Of course, she says, "Quote: I have been very reluctant to see the United States go into Libya. For one thing, we haven't identified yet." Who the opposition even is to Qaddafi? We don't know if this is led by Hamas, Hezbollah, or possibly Al Al Qaeda of North Africa. Are we really better off? Are the are United States' our interests better off if, let's say, Al Qaeda of North Africa now runs Libya? As I I just explained to you, our intelligence officials believe there is no Al Qaeda presence there. It doesn't matter. They are Arabs and if Obama's on one side, then Al Qaeda must be on that same side. That's the way Michelle Bachman thinks. All of that is clear. But did you catch the earlier part of that? What the hell would Hamas and Hezbollah be doing in Libya? Hamas? Hamas? <laughs> Look, Hamas is in, is in Gaza Strip, which is absolutely nothing to do with Libya. But does that matter to Michelle Bachman, of course, at first, she has no idea what Hamas and Hezbollah really are, is my guess. But second, whether she knows or doesn't know, it doesn't matter. It sounds scary. It's a Muslim group. Oh, Hamas. That's you just sprinkle it in there. Hamas, Hezbollah, Al Qaeda of North Africa. Did I scare people enough? Did I say, yes, win. That's who Obama's with. That's how conservatives operate. They should not be taken seriously. They are fools. They are liars. They do it on purpose. They are demagogues of the worst variety. They should be completely and utterly ignored. Their so called opinions are both lies and completely useless at the same time.
9: This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Bradley Herring. Right wing media figures, desperate to attack the president, have thrown everything but the kitchen sink at him regarding the conflict in Libya. From calls to intervene immediately to complaining about how he did it, coherence and logic have not been high priorities.
3: I agree with Bill Kristol in his editorial this weekend in the Weekly Standard in which he said the administration is dithering that they have moved
7: slowly. But if I were President Obama, I would unilaterally announce that the United States is going to enforce a no-fly zone. I mean, who's going to complain about that? We're in a third war, a third front. God help us all if it boils over in Libya. Has the
11: uh, president complied with the War Powers Act of 1973 in terms of consultation? Are we entering into a quagmire here that we can't get out of? Is this really a
9: few days?
4: I think that at this point the president is not really being honest with the American people about what this mission is all about.
9: There are some perennial features of U.S. TV coverage when the country goes to war. Military officials on every channel? On March 20th, Joint Chiefs Chair Mike Mullen was on every network Sunday show. Reporting about the incredible accuracy of high-tech weaponry? Here's CNN's Chris Lawrence on March 20th.
5: American Tomahawk missiles can be reprogrammed in flight. If there was a risk of civilian casualties, operators could change the target after launch. But the Navy did not use that ability confident it was aiming at military targets. Momar <laughs> Gaddafi says the strikes killed civilians, but a defense official told us, if you don't have to reprogram your missile, you're pretty confident in what you're hitting.
9: In case you didn't follow that, the point seemed to be there aren't civilians being killed in Libya because we have weapons that can be programmed to avoid that.
2: In the world of cable news, Fox and MSNBC are supposedly very different. One's way to the right, the other's on the left. But something seemed seem to bring the twain together, like bombing Libya. On one channel recently, a host explained that we should bomb Libya because they bombed Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988. Quote, the USA owes Gaddafi payback, and you don't kill Americans and get away with it, as President Reagan said. Close quote. On the other channel, a host declared, quote, I'm an American, you're an American, we all have opinions, close quote. He too said that the Flight 103 explosion is proof that Gaddafi is a terrorist, quote, do you need any more evidence? Has Gaddafi ever proven his innocence? Close quote. Well, the first comment was Fox's Bill O'Reilly. The second was Ed Schultz of MSNBC, who surely knows that U.S. law anyway doesn't require one to prove their innocence. Lockerbie did go to trial, of course, and an Egyptian agent was convicted, though there have been serious questions raised about the trial and the investigation. Of course, it's a little too much to hear Bill O'Reilly talk about the need to get Gaddafi before he kills more Libyan civilians. Shortly after the September 11th attacks, O'Reilly demanded attacks on Libya, saying that Gaddafi, quote, "...either quits and goes into exile, or we bomb his oil facilities, all of them, and we mine the harbor in Tripoli. Nothing goes in, nothing goes out. We also destroy all the airports in Libya. Let them eat sand." don't try too hard to sort out O'Reilly's current zeal to bomb the country to save the people he recently wanted to bomb the country and let starve it'll just make your head hurt
12: nothing see. I'd rather run the other way than stay and see. the smoke and who's still standing.
5: Yesterday we told you that conservatives are so desperate to demonize President Obama's intervention in Libya that they've latched onto the idea that Libyan rebels are really in cahoots with Al Qaeda. Ooh, that's scary. Oh my god, Al Qaeda. Even though the top US NATO commander says, "Quote, the intelligence that I'm receiving at this point makes me feel that the leadership that I'm seeing are responsible men and women who are struggling against Colonel Gaddafi." So apparently those scare tactics about Al-Qaeda are nonsense. But of course that's not going to stop Glenn Beck, he's got to outdo everyone else. So he's added some twists to the theory that President Obama is helping the terrorists. We're protecting the killers and the terrorists. We have gone from a nation who was doing the wrong thing by siding with Mubarak to a nation who is doing an even greater evil by arming al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood which empowers Iran
7: and also, in the end, destroys Israel.
5: That was fantastic, man. There were so many ridiculous comments in just two sentences. That's why he's the record holder and crazy. Nobody can beat him. So let's break it down real quick. First, by fighting against Qaddafi, we are now apparently helping terrorists and killers. But guess what we would have been doing if we let Gaddafi kill the opposition? You guessed it, helping terrorists and killers. So in the Glenn Beck world, all roads lead to Obama helping terrorists. Literally, no matter what he does. Second, to further make that point, he then says we were wrong for helping Mubarak, and we're now even more wrong for helping his opposition. So those are your two options in evaluating the president. Wrong or more wrong? Third, somehow the Sunni Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt has jumped to the Libyan opposition. Okay, maybe, they're neighbors. But then they jumped all the way to Shiite Iran and joined in some sort of evil, crazy plan against Israel while in the middle of fighting against Gaddafi. Does anyone else get lost in these conspiracies? I don't get it. Where's Acorn in all of this? How'd they start this? Finally, how did we wind up destroying Israel by helping pro democracy rebels in Libya? Where the hell did that come from? And how is Van Jones responsible? I want to know.
8: This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Lisa Reed. As we've previously noted, conservative media figures have only one strategy in their coverage of the Libyan unrest, make Obama look bad. But we see a bit of hypocrisy in these actions particularly because they were so quick to demonize critics of the war in Iraq.
3: One of the fundamental principles we have in America is that the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces and attempts to undermine the, the commander-in-chief during time of war amounts to treason. Tomorrow
10: our Democratic leaders who criticize the war in Iraq actually aiding the terrorists. Why, Nevada Senator John Ensign says you bet they are.
8: Howard Dean should be arrested for treason and either hung or put in a hole until the war's is over. But what are they saying now about President Obama's actions in Libya?
3: I don't have confidence because I know the truth. Yeah. The truth is is they've been utterly completely incoherent. <laughs> I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of the Progressive magazine, with my Progressive Point of View, which you can also grab off our website over at Progressive.org. In his big speech, President Obama failed to make the case for intervention in Libya. He never addressed the issue of his war-making powers. He failed to distinguish between Libya and other cases like it, such as Syria, Yemen, or Bahrain, and he didn't adequately address the question of the overextension of our military and the distraction from the crying needs that face this country. Instead, he stressed the humanitarian justification for the action using the word massacre four times and oddly echoing George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice's phraseology about not waiting for the mushroom cloud. Like Bush, Obama spun a justification for preemptive or preventive war, a dangerous doctrine which future presidents may invoke anytime they wish. Nor did Obama forswear his predecessor's unilateralism. I'll never hesitate to use our military swiftly, decisively, and unilaterally when necessary to defend our people, our homeland, our allies, and our core interests, Obama said. And then he added a secondary list of occasions for intervention, lumping everything in from preventing genocide, to maintaining the flow of commerce. Now if the Pentagon's gonna go on bombing raids every time the flow of commerce is threatened, then we can really expect perpetual war.
8: enemies we don't know. It is a measure of how powerful the U.S. military is, and how poor the media is, that the nation wages war against peoples and countries it knows nothing about. It does it, gets chastened or beaten, vows not to do it again, and of course does it again and again. When U.S. forces hit Vietnam, it did so almost as an afterthought, to assist a beaten European ally, France, and in support, of what scholars and analysts both called the domino theory, as if, if Vietnam fell, all of Asia would tumble like dominoes. This theory, like many such ones in support of imperial wars, was false. Decades later, one of the war's foremost hawks, U.S. Defense Secretary McNamara, would admit that American leaders knew next to nothing about Vietnam, its history, language, or culture, and that such ignorance made victory virtually impossible then Somalia, then Iraq, now Libya. How many of us know that much of the internal war is driven by tribal conflicts? That one of the major eastern tribes, the Senussi, lost power and influence when King Idris was overthrown in 1969 by the Free Officers Movement, of which Colonel Gaddafi was a part. That many of them don't want a democracy, but want the kingdom restored. That many flew flags of the House of Idris. A Western puppet like Farouk of Egypt or the Shah of Iran during initial rebellion. Does it seem strange to you that Western so-called democracies are fighting on the side of kings? Oh, and backwards, poor Libya. Did you know that Libya has the highest per capita GDP in Africa, higher than South Africa? Or that it had one of the highest rates of literacy in the Arab world, almost 20% higher than Egypt? I didn't either. I read it, and to check it, I looked it up. We don't know, because it's not in the interest of the corporate forces which owns and uses the media for us to know. Ten years after the Afghanistan war started, and eight years after the Iraq war began, and we haven't learned a damn thing. From Death Row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal.
11: Barack Obama finally came on television. Was it Monday night or Tuesday night? And he explained why we're we're going into Libya, our third Arab country. And uh, well, let's play a little bit of it.
6: We were faced with the prospect of violence on a horrific scale. To brush aside America's responsibility as a leader, and more profoundly our responsibilities to our fellow human beings under such circumstances,
11: would have been a betrayal of who we are. That's right. And he knows that it would have been a betrayal, and the American people feel that way for a fact because he read their emails using warrantless wiretaps. (laughs) I'm going to defend (laughs) him. he is not going to betray Americans' values.
4: I am going to defend him here and say that this is... Let's play a
11: little bit more, and then we'll come back and we'll sum up at the end. Okay, so let's keep going a little bit.
6: We were faced with the prospect of violence on a horrific scale. To brush aside America's responsibility as a leader... And more profoundly, our responsibilities to our fellow human beings under such circumstances would have been a betrayal of who we are. Mm -hmm. Some nations may be able to turn a blind eye to atrocities in other countries. The United States of America is different.
11: That's right. We're able to turn a blind eye to atrocities right here at home. right? <laughs> Bonusing people for kicking Americans out of their homes. A million and a half homeless children. Children right here in our own country. And don't forget, we're torturing Private Bradley Manning. We turn a blind eye to all those atrocities right here at home. Isn't that nice? That's what makes us different and special. And here's the end of his uh, speech.
6: And as president, I refuse to wait
11: for the images of slaughter and mass graves before taking action. That's right. In fact, all he waited for was the flow of oil to be slowed down for just a couple of weeks. <laughs> and then he jumped right in. But that, you know what, it
4: does... Go ahead.
11: What, what, what we've well, How to big, of, a, how about big
4: of an oil producer is Libya? Well, are they, they per, they're they're per, a major player. They're not a major.
11: They're not a major, but they are a major so player in sweet crude, which is which is actually screwing things up. So they don't produce like volume amount of oil, but they produce a specific type of oil. Are we
4: talking light sweet crude, Jimmy, or just sweet crude? Not, i got, I have to know <laughs> so to be fully bored. Is it nutra sweet
11: crude? <laughs> it's no no hormones. <laughs> yeah. Well, the bigger oh, okay. the bigger
4: concern is the chilling effect if Libya fell. Well, if uh, if problems in Libya get worse, that that it would have a problem throughout OPEC. That's the bigger issue. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it they're
11: not a major oil producer, though. I mean, but, yeah, but, they, but, okay. but 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 it, but 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 the fact that it is best. upsetting it is upsetting cuz uh, saudi Arabia, but because it's got to do with uh, the the amount of sulfur or something that's in the oil and that's what gives it its gradation of sweet or not sweet right. and the fact that they're not producing their sweet is actually throwing the markets all goofy cuz mm-hmm. saudi Arabia is trying to make up for it but they can't mm-hmm. because they just don't have that much of it so that's the thing they have a unique type of oil that people need and that's why it's such a big deal and that's why we went in I- i'm convinced that's why we went I in it's know. not a war though it's it's not a war. It's uh, the
10: proper term that they prefer you use is death orgy. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I disagree, though. I, th- I mean, I yeah. think that they averted a s- a pretty substantial slaughter.
11: Of- yeah, yeah, but I, that is true, and, and we're not going in unilaterally. That is true. That is true. That we did, uh, but you know, why, why there and why not somewhere else?
4: I I think I think it's because, because of oil. Cho- no, I think it's because, because they, they have chose, crude. They chose a, a war they could win. They chose, like, no one likes Gaddafi. Let's, we're not winning
11: own. this. There is no opposition, by the way. So, it's, it's That was
5: the, um, the, the, uh, justification me, me, for a lot of people behind going into Iraq was, um, because
10: it's winnable. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Friedman said that. Yes. On Charlie Rose, he said it's so we can go up to every, knock on every door in Iraq and say, suck on this. You know, uh-huh. so yes, yeah. it's, it's it's weird that we're in a position where we're only going to war if it's winnable, and then they turn out not to be winnable anyway.
11: Well, the, you know, uh, the good thing is that at least Barack Obama gave his word that this is just going to be an air intervention. We will not. I repeat, we will not deploy any U.S. troops on the ground.
5: See, so that's good. There's going to be no boots on the ground. Reuters reporting there are American boots on the ground (laughs) in Libya. President Obama has signed a secret order authorizing covert U.S. government support for rebel forces in Libya.
11: Okay, well, he must have just did that last night or something, because he's been telling us for weeks that there's going to be no boots. Officials tell Reuters. The order was signed within the past two or three weeks. Oh, my God. So, you know, there's a big difference between Barack Obama and George Bush. Can I take back? I'm going to defend him. (laughs) And the difference is Barack Obama has dark skin. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when a black guy is instituting, doing the bidding of the military industrial complex, it's a lot different than when a white guy does it.
7: Hey Jay, this is Seth from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. First off, I'd like to say that uh, a few weeks ago, there's a lady that called in and asked about podcasts about the, the Supreme Court. And I'd like to say that C-SPAN has a podcast that I think it's just called the Supreme Court. But if you search Supreme Court in, um, in iTunes, it'll come up. It's by C-SPAN and it has profiles like interviews with each of the justices and it is really great, and I really recommend it, especially in regard to Clarence Thomas, because we all know about Clarence Thomas and how he doesn't ask questions, and he doesn't speak during all the arguments, but I think that that podcast really shed some light, like that interview shed light on why he is the way he is and, and honestly, they're all great and they're all worth a listen
12: alright, thanks, love the show, see ya This is Colin again from uh, Sacramento, California. Um, if you don't want to, you don't have to play this on the show. Uh, I don't really care either way. But um, I just felt like I should call in again because, uh, long story short, I was wrong. I looked up the statistic, uh, and after a few minutes of searching and researching various articles, I found that the statistic of $1 million per soldier per year... Not, and that's, you know, that is a per soldier cost, so it's not just dividing the total war funds by the number of soldiers. So, I was wrong about that. And it's it's used by the White House, which, you know, obviously has an interest in making their statistics accurate, because that's the statistics they're going to use to run the country. Um, And then, interestingly, a statistic of half that number is used by the Pentagon, so maybe they need to, you know, someone is wrong, I don't know probably the Pentagon, because they tend to inexplicably favor non-realities that make them look better. Um, So yeah, what I meant by half that was uh, the Pentagon says that it costs $500,000 per soldier. So, anyway. But uh, yeah, that's according to the New York Times. The New York Times says the White House uses that statistic, so it's probably valid. I would say almost definitely. And as for the Supreme Court corruption thing, Yes, people, like, uh, he did do that. He went to it. I mean, I guess it just comes down to what do you think of as corrupt? When I think of corrupt, I think definitely way corrupt, not, uh, debatably finicky. Yeah, he's going to a thing. Like, yeah, I can, I can, you know, I can see how someone would think of that as corrupt. And also, I don't mean to call anyone out. You know, I didn't mean to sound that hostile. I still love your show. And I love, you know, the segments from David Pakman overall. I just think that you should definitely be doing your show, and the video thing is awesome. Uh, I hope you have a nice day, and I really appreciate you making the show.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Uh, here's the thing today. I don't have much time and I also don't have much to talk about. So that works out really, really well. Uh, so I'm just going to say uh, I've mentioned PowerShift before. It is absolutely coming down to the line. Um, it's it's to the point where like many of you hearing this will be uh, listening to it after the conference is taking place. Um, this show is being posted on April 9th. Uh, the, sh- the conference I'm referring to is in Washington, D.C., happening on the 15th, the 15th through the 18th. So this is kind of like last-minute uh, thing here. This will almost certainly be the last time I talk about it, but uh, it's certainly something that I support. And if you have the chance to go, I want to encourage you to do that. So check out powershift2011.org to, to uh, learn all about that. I want to mention again, of course, that the show is now in video. We have, what well, kind of, sort of. We have a video version of the show on YouTube. Uh, the clips are all uh, you know parsed out, just the way you would imagine. Uh, there's no music, <laughs> um, and it doesn't—it doesn't have the uh, the editorial flair you might get from the audio version. But it's excellent for sharing. So if you're uh, interested in seeing what you're missing from the show, that's a good place to do it. And if you're interested in sharing uh, individual clips rather than uh, the entire show, that's also a good way to do it. So uh, check all that out. You can go straight to YouTube.com/slash/the best of the left. Or uh, obviously, it's linked up at bestofleft.com. So that's going to be it for today. I just want to thank a couple of awesome members. Uh, first of all, Wayne B., who actually goes by Ben. And I don't know if I thanked him already or not, but my spreadsheet says that I didn't. He I, He's one of, if not the only, Satanist member of the show and uh, and signed up back on December 9th. Uh, so that was awesome of him. And Joyce G., signed up on january 3rd as a socialist member paying for her full year in advance so huge thanks to wayne and joyce and all the members who make the show possible everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it spread the word and follow the show between episodes on facebook and twitter and get all the details about the show including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode all of that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
2: The Out any open door. This is not my life. It's just a far-